And now for something completely different. Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. And good morning. What? Good morning. Good morning and welcome to uh, the second best day of the week. Of course, it's Thursday as we get ready to wrap up. Not only, well, we have actually wrapped up the month of August, starting September, of course, this weekend, Labor Day. That means you've got an extended holiday. So I hope you have a great weekend this weekend. Enjoy yourself. Um, hopefully it'll stop raining in Houston for a few days. So, you know, it's either it's either drought or flood, one of the two. And so, you know, there we go. And that's that's been the case lately. So. Uh, yesterday, if you didn't know, uh, we talked about this briefly on the show, that the Battleship Texas has made its maiden voyage uh, since. When was the last time that the Battleship Texas actually was sailing? Under her own power? Uh, under any power. Well, yeah, she was towed down to uh, a dry dock back in the 90s, and before that it was 1948. There you go. Mm. And so, made her first maiden voyage since 1990 <laughs> down to Galveston, Texas to uh, be re- re- retrofitted. Yes. And of course, it was all over the news yesterday. If you didn't see it, tugboats, you know, towing the Battleship Texas along the Gulf Coast. So it was awesome. Yeah, it was pretty, it was actually pretty incredible. So hopefully after the retrofit, mm-hmm. uh, it'll find a new home here in Texas and you'll be able to go to uh, visit the Battleship Texas in, uh, in its uh, updated form. Yes. Right. Yes. All, 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 all gussied up, right? <laughs> New paint, deck, it'll be good. Anyway, it was pretty interesting. If you didn't, uh, if you saw it yesterday on the news, it was a pretty, pretty fascinating uh, event. Anyway, uh, a few things to get into today. Of course, uh, market sold off again yesterday and uh, a lot of pressure here over the last few days, last four days of, of selling. Now, you know, what's interesting is, is, you know, just a few days ago, just a week or so ago, we were talking about this raging bull market and headlines everywhere were, you know, the Fed's going to pivot and the bull market's back and, you know, this, you know, you got to buy stocks now and a lot of, a lot of bullish bias. And remember, that's what we kind of expected to happen. You know, we had such negative sentiment back at the bottom of the markets back in June. We were talking about massive, you know, massive negative sentiment, massive negative positioning on equities. And that was, that was the setup for a bullish rally. And that's the rally that we had. We had, and, and we said back then that the one thing we needed really for a good, strong counter-trend rally was for the media to get really bullish. And we needed Jim Cramer to come out and say, time to buy stocks. And he did that. And of course, now what's happened is that we fell right at the 200-day moving average, right at the top of that downtrend channel, and markets have been pulling back. The good news is so far is that we're, we're not having given up all the gains yet. That's, that's about the only good news. Uh, markets are oversold here on a short-term basis, and we talked about it over the last day or so. Is that, you know we could get a little bounce here, but use these bounces as an opportunity to sell into. Uh, but we did take out the 50-day moving average. If we don't close above that by Friday, um, then that's going to be a confirmed break of the 50, and that's going to suggest that we're going to start to probably retest some of these kind of lower levels in the markets that we were talking about back in June and July. 
So again, there is some downside risk here just to pay attention to. Um, but as I said, markets are oversold enough here that we could see a bounce for a day or two, just kind of a reef, a little bit of a reflexive rally. You know, when you have these, when you have, you know, just these, uh, you know, kind of selling days one after the other, you kind of exhaust sellers in the short term. And so again, it, it kind of makes it easy for markets to bounce. But again, any bounce here that you get will will be something you'll want to raise, you know, uh, sell, raise some capital, raise some cash, uh, reduce some of your equity risk. We're still on a MACD sell signal again. That's been a really good indicator here of kind of a risk off position. I uh, just want to keep paying mind to that. When we get this, uh, you know, the MACD indicator back to a level that is giving us a buy signal, that'll be a better opportunity to put capital to work. So in the meantime, just kind of treat market rallies as an opportunity to sell into, not really trying to buy the dip at the moment. Uh, a couple other things here too with the markets and where we are. We are moving into the month of September. Tends to be a bit of a weaker month and we also have the FOMC coming up at the end of the month. Of course, they're going to have their policy meeting and talk about their next Fed rate hike. We'll talk some more about that this morning with Michael Leibowitz. Um, you know, that's expected now. Odds of a 75 basis point rate hike back on the table and, the, and what's going to be really important is not just the rate hike but does Jerome Powell reiterate that view that he had at Jackson Hole talking about, hey, markets and the economy might have to experience some pain here because we need to fight inflation first and foremost. And, you know, with some of the other economic data coming in, will that view have softened any, particularly given the sell off in the markets and, and the expectations right now are not. Uh, that that won't be the case. In fact, we just had a couple of Fed speakers out of the last couple of days talking about the need for higher rates and why the, the, the target kind of rate for Fed funds is going to be closer to 4% right now. We're currently about 2.25 to 2.5. So, you know, there's a good ways to go here yet for the Fed to hike interest rates. And that's also why markets have been under pressure here. Interestingly enough, despite the fact that we saw inflation kind of dropping off here last month, you know, we had that 0% inflation. That's what really got this market moving was this idea with a, a zero inflation print for the month on a year over year basis that, well, now the Fed needs to pivot. Well, that turned out not to be the case at all. And more importantly, now we're starting to see you got to forward indicators, break-even rates of inflation, et cetera. Those are moving back up, suggesting that they're expecting higher rates of inflation right now to continue. And so this kind of idea that we may have a transitory inflationary period of the markets is starting to really kind of back up here just a bit over the last you know couple of weeks in particular. And we'll see if that continues to play out. But you know this is why we're starting to see short-term rates on the two-year Treasury starting to move up fairly sharply. Again, in anticipation of the Fed remaining aggressive about hiking rates. And, and of course, why do we do that? Slow the economy. And this is going to be the big challenge, right? So, you know, the, the big risk for the Fed is that they're trying to slow economic growth in order to bring down inflation and navigate that in a manner of not causing a recession. That's going to be a fairly tall order. And particularly when we start looking at some of the economic data that is out there, it's all suggesting that there is some recessionary risk. Uh, inverted yield curves, we have more than 50% of them now inverted. Uh, of, the, of the ones that we track, 50% of those are now inverted. That's normally a good indicator that you're kind of in that pre-recessionary mode. In other words, there's risk to the economy. 
CEO confidence is now down to 34. And I've got an article coming out on CEO confidence next week. But interesting, when you look at the comments made by the CEOs, they are not optimistic at all about the economy and what's happening. And, and what's interesting here is that while we haven't seen a pickup in job losses just yet, very low levels of CEO conf uh, confidence precede job losses. And that makes complete sense, right? CEOs right now are struggling going, okay, you know, the, the economy's not good. Things are slowing down. I've got too much inventory, whatever it is. They're trying to work through that process without terminating employees, but eventually when it gets down to profit margins, those eventually CEOs will you know, acquiesce and start laying off employees. So very poor CEO confidence is a very good leading indicator of both economic recessions by about six to nine months and job losses. And in fact, the last time we had CEO confidence at this level, was back in October of 2019, and in March of 2020, we're in a recession with major job losses. And again, so, you know, uh, CEOs didn't see the, the, the uh, pandemic coming, but they knew something was weak in the economy, and all it was gonna take was a trigger event to cause the recession. We'll come back, talk some more about this with Michael Leibowitz right after the break on The Real Investment Show. Don't go away. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. Hi, Lance Roberts here. If you're like most people, your 401k plan represents the bulk of your retirement assets. And unfortunately for many, managing your 401k plan can be difficult. There's so many choices, so many things to consider. With just a quick email, a couple of questions, you can put RIA Advisors to work for you managing your 401k plan. Get started right now at the website, realinvestmentadvice.com, or simply call our toll-free number, 855-RIA-PLAN, or again, simply online at realinvestmentadvice.com. The Real Investment Show. Welcome back to the show this morning. Michael Leibowitz joining me a little bit here to talk about, you know, of course, what's going on in the markets at the moment. And, and this is all about, you know, the Fed. And as we wrote about in this past weekend's news, uh, newsletter, and again, let me just uh, quote from Jerome Powell just to kind of set the stage here for a moment uh, for our discussion this morning. And, you know, when because, again, you have to, as I was saying in, in the first segment, when you go back and think about we were at the June lows, and I know that seems like decades ago now, we were talking about the massive negative sentiment in the markets. It's like, you know, we've got so much negative sentiment. Everybody's on one side of the boat. And that's generally a great setup for a counter trend rally in the markets. And, you know, that's what we got. And, and of course, you know, we saw all that bearish sentiment become very bullish. Lots of articles being written about the new bull market is back and the, the bottom is in. And, you know, we were saying, hey, be a little bit careful here because it's way too early set. But we had a very, very strong rally. S&P was up 17 percent from the lows, um, you know, and, and had kind of alleviated a lot of that negativity in the markets. And, and of course, unfortunately, that kind of fell apart when Jerome Powell last Friday uttered these simple words from Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Restoring price stability will take some time, 
and requires using our tools forcefully to bring demand and supply into better balance. Now, as we talked about before, the whole inflation equation is about supply versus demand. Too much supply, too little demand, prices fall. Too much demand, too little supply, prices rise. That's how you have inflation. And so, yes, some of this was supply chain shutdowns, but a lot of this was the fact we just injected households with massive amounts of money and the economy was shut down, so we couldn't supply any goods. So too much demand, too little supply, voila, you have inflation. So now the problem for the Fed is to try to bring those prices back down, and you do that by slowing demand so that it will balance with supply. Exactly what he said. Okay, so continuing on with the statement, reducing inflation is likely to require a sustained period of below-trend growth. Now, below-trend growth is interesting because trend is 2%. So you're talking about very slow economic growth, but not negative, right? The, the, the Fed's job here is to try to create slower growth without a recession. They're not very good at that, by the way, but they're going to try it. Moreover, there will likely be some softening of labor market conditions. While higher interest rates, slower growth, and softer labor market conditions will bring down inflation, they will also bring some pain to households and businesses. Of course, we were just talking about CEO confidence a moment ago. Uh, back down towards the lowest levels on its indicator, which is currently at 34. It's a very low level for CEO confidence. They're already starting to experience some of the pain, and the Fed's not done yet. Uh, these are the unfortunate costs of reducing inflation, but a failure to restore price stability, inflation, uh, would mean far more pain. So that's what Jerome Powell said, and when he said that, the market sold off like 3% immediately because what that obviously suggests is that they're not done hiking rates yet. So we're not, we weren't close to the pivot after all. And that was the disappointment to the markets. Um, interestingly, though, you know, talking about household pain, CEO pain, we're talking about CEO confidence now, very low household pain. Um, consumers are taking out pay loans to buy groceries. In just the last year, these Pay later loans, these buy now, pay later loans have surged from 15 to $42 billion. And so, of course, higher interest rates. And we're talking about, you know, a lot of people saying, well, the household balance sheet's so healthy because they have all these excess savings from all that stimulus. No, they don't. They're out borrowing money on a buy now, pay later basis just to buy groceries. That's that's the household pain that Jerome Powell's talking about. Let me, uh, let me bring Michael Leibowitz in here. Michael, your initial thoughts, and then we'll get into work here. Yes. So this is, I think this was probably one of his most important speeches. And you had mentioned the part about employment. Mm -hmm. And I think that may be the biggest part of his speech that that's worth uh, kind of discussing. He, he basically is hearkening back to Paul Volcker's days. And what Paul Volcker in the late 70s as the Fed chair in the early 80s had to deal with was double digit inflation. And one of the reasons was what they call a price wage spiral. So prices rise, which we've had already, mm -hmm. and then employees ask for raises. Employees quit to get higher paying jobs. And that happens. And then the companies have to charge more for their products. And then the, comp the people come back and they say, well, I'm not making enough anymore. <laughs> and it creates a spiral. Right. And between what Powell said and what some other Fed members have said, we're at that point where we've had inflation and they're scared to death, I think, of a price wage spiral. Mm -hmm. We haven't, we've seen the kind of the, the beginning of a price wage spiral. We know that 
like for instance, ADP just got re-released after uh, they rejiggered the formulas for two months. And they put out a really interesting stat. Those that stayed on their jobs got, I think it was six or 7% raises, while those that quit and found new jobs got 17% raises. Right. So the incentive to either ask for more money or quit and get a new job is very high. And the last thing the Fed wants to see is that spiral gaining momentum. So it's not necessarily that they have to kill the economy. They have to really, they have to inflict some damage on the jobs market. And every jobs indicator so far <clears throat> is telling us that the jobs market is incredibly tight, right? We've had we've had jobs growth of four or five hundred thousand now, which is at least double the average from before the pandemic. We saw the number of job openings, while it was starting to decline, shot higher last month. The quits rate is very high. So, yes, the, the labor market is probably slowing a little bit, but it has to slow a lot. And when he talks about inflicting pain, he's never going to come out and dire directly and say, we just got to fire a lot of people from the economy. It's not very political. It's not a great way to hold on to your job. But that's what has to happen. And that's. I think what the Fed is realizing and the Fed realizes to do that, it, it's going to take higher rates for longer. And the market was not priced for that last Friday. And it, it lands. The problem is the market's still not priced for that. If you look at Fed funds futures and inflation expectations, they're telling you everything's going to come back down to normal. The Fed's going to be easing halfway through next year. And the one year inflation expectation is close to 2% now. So the market still thinks this is going to be normal. And maybe they're right. You know, if the Fed can kind of nip the employment wage price uh, spiral, easy for me to say, wage price <laughs> spiral in the bud, you know, they have a shot of doing that. Yeah. So I, I think what's important is we get the employment report tomorrow. We were focused heavily on inflation data. I, I think going forward, we're going to have to be equally focused on employment data. Right. And I thought it was interesting when you're talking about, um, you know, this issue with the great resignation and people quitting their jobs. There was a recent survey out from Statista showing that 26 percent of people that quit their job regretted the decision. Forty percent said it was harder than expected to find a new job. Twenty two percent. They said they missed the people at their old job and the new job was not what they hoped for. The old job was better than they realized. Of course, you know, grass is never greener. And the bad culture management at the new job and the higher pay, and this is the interesting one, 3% of them said that the higher pay for the new job wasn't worth the transition. And so, you know, it, it's very interesting that, you know, to Mike's point, people are job hopping, you know, to try to get higher pay, but, you know, it doesn't always work out just as, you know, easy as, as a lot of things, you know, happen. And it's the same thing with, you know, millennials buying houses. A bunch of them ran out and bought houses because they had capital and everybody told them they were supposed to own a house. And once they bought the house, they're like, yeah, this was a really bad decision. <laughs> so, you know, it's always important. There's more There's more to a job than just pay, right? Just And, and again, this is one of the things that people will find out. But, Mike, to your point, you know, there's an interesting kind of byline here, you know, also is that, you know, the Fed's talking about this issue of, of needing to slow employment, trying to bring down the supply-demand imbalance in the economy. Um, and they're going to have to use, and I thought their line was uh, very important. You know, what was funny about the, the whole Jackson Hole Summit, by the way, was is everybody was expecting it to be a big nothing burger, right? I mean, it was going to be, 
the Fed just kind of reiterating what they said at the last meeting, nothing shocking. And then Jerome Powell drops this bomb on the markets. And, you know, certainly nothing that, that they were anticipating, much more hawkish than, than what people thought. And, you know, the, the focus was really delivering this message that, you know, hey, we're going to have to really work at this. And, you know, you just it was pretty much a warning that, you know, you're just going to kind of be on your own here for a while while we fight inflation. And there's really no timeline here that the Fed's going to stop doing that, you know, anytime soon. There is, you know, that that whole hope for a pivot kind of evaporated very quickly. Right. And, and I think what scares the Fed is what happened to Volcker. Inflation popped for the second time in the late 70s and it came right down, but then it popped right back up in the early 80s. So I, I think what they're scared about is the rebound, is is taking their foot off the brake too soon. Mm -hmm. So I, I think if anything, they're going to err to the side of doing more damage and making sure that inflation is put away for good. Because the Lance, the most important thing to consider is that the debt levels now are so much higher than they were back then. Right. So our ability to withstand the inflation that we saw in the late 70s and 80s is much less. It will hurt much more. And I think that's the biggest thing that scares the Fed. And the Fed knows they have a job to do and they have to do it. Yeah. And if that means the stock market tumbles, if that means jobs are lost, I think they feel like that's an acceptable price. Well, you know, it's interesting that you said that because, you know, one thing that, you know, yes, the inflation of the late 70s and a highly indebted economy is certainly problematic, but higher interest rates are problematic. And, and again, you know, one thing we'll talk about, you know, after the break is the housing market because that's such a big component of the economy. And it's also kind of the center where a lot of people's net worth is in a lot of cases. But, you know, as we start hiking interest rates, you know, in such a highly indebted economy, the risk that we run is a much bigger, you know, a potential for a crisis rather than just an economic slowdown. And that's not been uncommon during periods of Fed rate hikes in the past. And the question is, is this time going to be different? We'll come back, talk about housing markets, prices, and, you know, kind of the overall impact to the economy right after the break with Michael Leibowitz. Don't go away. investment advice blog it's required reading for the informed investor catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com in 1999 a parafiduciary group of financial advisors were busted by corporate giants for trying to operate in their clients best interest these men promptly escaped from a high cost margin environment to the houston energy corridor today still excoriated by their former employers they survive as protectors of others' fortunes. If you have a problem about preserving capital, if no one else can help, and you can find them right here, maybe you should hire the RIA team. You're listening to The Real Investment Show. So as the Fed hikes interest rates, uh, of course, one of the bylines to that is that 
you know, we see mortgage rates tend to go up, and that's what we're seeing now as mortgage rates near 6%. We're starting to see real pressure in the housing market, you know, not surprisingly. Housing prices got well above their long-term trends. They also got well above um, income affordabilities uh, for houses, et cetera. So, you know, when you go back and look at kind of the average long-term trends of housing prices, you know, there's certainly times in, in the economy that, you know, things are going really well and, and people are kind of overpaying for houses. And, you know, that would, that would you know, vacillate a bit above kind of the long-term average, but not, not to a great degree until we got into 2000 and started, you know, changing the dynamic behind the mortgage market. And all of a sudden it was no longer 20% down payments. And, you know, then you got your loan for, you know, whatever it was for 30 years. And, but you had to have 20% skin in the game. Well, after 2000, we started doing these things like adjustable rate mortgages. And then we were splitting mortgages between you know, eight, doing 80% in one mortgage, 20% in another mortgage to avoid PMI, lower the down payment. And that created, you know, all these kind of maturations to getting a home loan. Um, led to the housing bubble in 2007, 2008. And, of course, we know how that turned out as all these subprime loans blew up, et cetera, because people were getting houses they couldn't afford. So, you know, that massive price deviation we had back then corrected, you know, back to the long-term trends. Well, now over the last few years, because of zero interest rates, massive liquidity into the markets, government sending checks to households, people ran out, they bought houses, created a lot of demand for houses. Again, supply versus demand. We had not enough housing supply available for sale because, again, when you think about the housing market, we're only talking about the very few people on the outer edges of that, uh, of that housing market that are actually looking to buy or sell a house, right? If, you know, Michael Ewitz has been leaving a house for like 900 dog years. So, you know, hmm. he's not affecting the price of the market because he's not trying to buy or sell his house. Um, you know, so the, so it's this very, you know, kind of fringe element of the real estate market that drives these prices. And, and they got clearly out of whack because of, you know, all this liquidity that was flooded into the markets. Well, now interest rates are moving up. People don't have liquidity. Um, you know, people are regretting. Uh, they recently had a survey of millennials that bought houses and they were regretting buying houses sight unseen. They were regretting buying houses with no inspection. You know, they were doing all these things, you know, buying houses and they were just buying houses off the Internet because they were moving so quickly that if they didn't get a bid in to buy a house that they couldn't get one. And so they were buying houses in neighborhoods they didn't even want to be in. And now that they bought this house, they got, well, this really kind of sucks. It cost me a lot to live here. I really don't have the money to afford it. And there's a lot of regret. And in fact, 40% of millennials now regret buying their house. And so this is, you know, this is going to change psychology in the markets. But, you know, over the next couple of years, higher interest rates are going to affect the prices of homes. You know, all of a sudden, that massive housing shortage we had has now become a housing surplus. Because not surprisingly, when people started seeing houses, house prices start to kind of stall and stagnate, start to fall, you know, Mike's in his house and he's like, yeah, you know, maybe I should sell my house. You know, those prices are really elevated right now. So all of a sudden, all this kind of inventory came to the market of people wanting to sell houses. Now houses are sitting on the, on the markets for a lot longer. And the more that the Fed tightens monetary policy, reduces liquidity, slow it, slows economic growth, there's a risk to the housing market of a bigger price correction 
which is important because that's a big chunk of net worth for many Americans. Most Americans don't have any money in the stock market, right? 90% of the stock market is owned by the top 10% of income earners. Most Americans, the majority of their wealth, and quote, their net worth is in their house. And so when these house prices start to decline, doesn't mean that, you know, people have less money to spend because they're, you know, they, you know, it's just the value of the house, but it also affects confidence, right? They see the value of their most precious asset falling. That affects confidence that leads into economic, slower economic activity as, as that, as that weighs on consumers. Mike, your thoughts real quick before we get into I, a I think discussion? there's another... Yeah, I think there's another key aspect to that, to the whole housing discussion. And housing is kind of like a pyramid where you're relying on the lowest price buyers to support the highest priced houses. Mm -hmm. So if someone's going to sell their two, three million dollar house, they're probably selling it to someone that is in a million, million and a half dollar house that needs to sell that house to buy the two million dollar house. Mm -hmm. And it works its way down the line. So at the end of the day, it's those buyers of the four, five, six hundred thousand dollar houses that get the whole thing going. People buying their first homes, and those are the people that are most uh, dependent on mortgage rates. Mortgage rates are now six percent. They were below three percent for a little while. What nine months ago? A year mm -hmm. ago? Yeah. So the cost of buying that five hundred thousand dollar house has risen significantly. Now the cost of buying the $2 million house has risen significantly too, but the buyer of that house is probably selling a million, dollar, a million, million and a half dollar house. They have a lot of savings. They got a lot of wealth in the stock market. So for them, yeah, the mortgage rate on that extra 500,000 may be a little bit more, but they have a lot of other sources of income that, that will more than cover it and they can afford to pay that extra price. The problem is those that are entering the market are not in those same circumstances. They don't have a house to sell. They don't have equity to redeem to buy another house. So as this continues, as rates stay up here at five and a half, six percent, you're going to see more of those lower price houses not selling, which works its way up into the upper upper level houses. And in my neighborhood, it used to be that those those small the small houses that were no one ever put an addition on and these houses are 80 100 years old it's an old neighborhood and the houses that were pretty much untouched those were gold they would they would even before the pandemic they would sell in days and the new buyer would come in and it would either be a first time buyer or sometimes they would knock the house down those are the houses. There's two houses like that that have been sitting on the market. It's been shocking because they're relatively affordable, whatever that means anymore. <laughs> but no one, no one is going in to buy them. Right. So, and and ultimately, that's gonna, yeah, you know, it's gonna take a while to work its way through the system, but it's gonna start affecting the whole housing market. Well, and uh, to your point, and I think this we're seeing this on a nationwide basis as well, is that you know you're seeing houses sitting on markets longer. Price, you're starting to see price reductions, not people, you know, for a while there, we were seeing people list their price, you know, list their house at, you know, whatever number it was. And then there was this bidding war and people were just overpaying for the house. Now, for the first time that we've seen in a while, there's actually, you know, price reductions. In fact, we're seeing more of that um, being the case as people try to get houses moved and sold, et cetera. And the more that, that interest rates go up, of course, there's, there's two factors that, you know, relate to higher interest rates that are important as it relates to housing. The first thing is, is that, well, 
for a lot of people trying to buy a house, the difference in the more people buy payments, they don't buy houses, right? So Mike has a house. I really like his house. I want to buy his house. And, you know, it's everything I want. It's got all the right bells and whistles. It's got a wooden shed in the backyard for storing wood that Mike built himself. It's, it's great, right? It's perfect. And, you know, I can afford the house at $1,000 a month, but interest rates go up and now the payment is $1,200 a month and I really can't afford that in my budget. And, and so from a, from a payment perspective, I can't buy the house. The second factor, though, is psychological which for the last 40 years, what we've had is a consistent drop in interest rates. So even when interest rates moved up a little bit, they always came back down. So the second factor that's going to impact the housing market is going to be the psychology of interest rates, which is a lot of people are sitting there watching, hey, interest rates have moved up. They're 6%. They were 4% on 30-year mortgages You know, at the end of last year. I'll just wait because interest rates always come back down. So I'll just wait to buy a house when until rates come back down. And yeah, I won't be able to Mike's, buy Mike's house, but I can buy another house and a lot cheaper uh, because of that psychology. And that's and that and so what happens is is people withdraw out of the market from buying houses. That leads to this surplus of supply over demand. Prices do fall, and then ultimately we get into a recession and interest rates will fall again too. So you know, and this will start the whole cycle over again. The question though is is that we have to focus on is the housing market correction is only just starting. The question, and this is the, the, the question I ask, I'm asking you, Mike, is, is this just going to be a housing recession where we just see a decline in prices? Or is there a bigger risk to the housing market to where we see you know, a much deeper decline? Almost, I don't I want to call it a housing crisis like we saw back in you know, 2008 because that was a subprime issue. We don't have that now. But could we see a much more severe drop in housing prices, in your in your opinion? Uh, of course we could. It depends how far the Fed is going to. I think that's more of an economic question. Mm -hmm. I think as far as a housing recession, if by that you mean house prices come down, absolutely. But house prices were so elevated from where they were just two years ago. Coming down and coming down, you know, at a decent clip would just get us back to normal to where we kind of where where we were or where we should have been based on the trajectory before the pandemic. Mm -hmm. So yes, house prices are going to come down and we're starting to see signs of that in most major markets. And, you know, prices are just starting, but we're seeing the inventory of houses on the market is much larger than it was. The supply is growing. The demand is declining. All the signs of a housing market where prices are going to slow. But I think this kind of all gets back to the Fed and how long or how how harsh of a recession, how how much are they going to increase the unemployment rate by till they feel comfortable? So all loads, all roads lead back to the Fed. And I think what's so hard on the Fed is that some of what we're seeing today is because of what they started doing six, nine months ago. And there's a huge lag effect yeah. to what the Fed does. So when the Fed's thinking about, are they going to raise rates on September 20th? They're really talking about what's going to happen in June, July, August of 2023. And that's really difficult for anyone. Yeah. And the problem is, the, is that, yeah, the problem is because of the lag of the data. That's where the risk of a policy mistake becomes a lot greater. We'll talk about that right after the break with Michael Leibowitz. Don't go away.
Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. In 1999, a fiduciary group of financial advisors were busted by corporate giants for trying to operate in their clients' best interest. These men promptly escaped from a high-cost margin environment to the Houston Energy Corridor. Today, still excoriated by their former employers, they survive as protectors of others' fortunes. If you have a problem about preserving capital, if no one else can help, and you can find them right here, maybe you should hire the RIA team. The Real Investment Show. So, the big risk, right, to financial markets. Look, and, and here's so let's let's uh, do a quick recap of markets for a moment, and just kind of get you to where we are. So, first of all, when we take a look at the market, we're still in a bullish trend of the market. We have not violated any of the bullish trend of the market since 2009. Um, you know, despite the fact that you know the media says, hey, if you're down 20, percent you're in a bear market. That, that's really just this arbitrary number. And back in the day where we had more normalized markets relative to you know, long-term trends, et cetera, 20% decline would break the previous bullish trend. And so that's why the 20% number worked back then. So you know, that was, it was, that was a, a kind of a good indicator for, for a bear market. Today, because we're so deviated from long-term means, and because especially since 2009, because of all this liquidity from the markets, a 20% decline is a correction and doesn't even get you into a bear market. And in other words, what a bear market is, is when your trend of prices is no longer positive, right? They're not going up. Your trend of prices is lower. And, and right now, you can draw a very clear trend line from 2009 to where we are now. We're still in a bullish trend. Prices are still moving higher, even though we're having this correction. Now, why is this important? Because what we're talking about here is the risk of a policy mistake that creates a bigger problem in the markets. Now, look, markets are, are clearly down this year and certainly been a bit of angst for investors. But we're still about 20% higher than we were in the March of 2020, right? So if you go back just a couple of years and look at your annualized return from 2020 to present, you're still up about 10% a year on the S&P. So not terrible, right? Not terrible at all. Just feels bad this year. But here's the risk. And as Mike was saying a second ago, and this is critically important about Fed policy, when the Fed hikes in interest rates, and even and even Jerome Powell acknowledged this at Jackson Hole in his speech, he talked about the lag of changes to monetary policy, and it takes between nine and twelve months. And what Mike said before the break is crucially important to this idea. The Fed hiked interest rates seventy-five basis points back in July, and when they did that, that interest rate hike is not going to impact, doesn't impact the economy immediately, right? Just because they change the rate doesn't have an immediate impact on the economy. It's got to filter through the economy through higher interest rates on credit cards and variable rate debt and these type of things. And that takes about 12 months for that to show up in the economy. And, <coughs> excuse me, so the impact of a Fed rate hike in July won't show up until July of next year. Now they're going to hike rates again in September, Another 75 basis points, which won't show up until August, September of next year. Here's the risk. And this is the, and this is the biggest problem for the Fed and why we talk about the potential for a policy mistake. 
is they're hiking rates right now based on economic data that is lagging, right? Employment data is a lagging indicator. It's what happened last month. We hired 300,000 people last month. Now, and that data is very subject to big, big negative revisions in the future. We may find out a year from now when we revise the employment data that we lost jobs in, in June, July, August. And that wouldn't be surprising because the household survey as opposed to the BLS survey, the household survey is showing job losses. The household survey is showing job losses over the last three months, even though the BLS has been reporting job gains. So we may very well see all that employment data get revised negatively, and the Fed was hiking rates based on that lagging data. So all this hiking that they're doing is adding to the drag on the economy, but they're driving the car looking at a rearview mirror. And so by the time all these rate hikes catch up, the risk is, is they over-tighten, right? They tighten too much, and that causes the economy to go on a recession. Mike, uh, let you jump in here real quick, and then we'll continue the conversation. Yeah, and uh, Cleveland Fed President Mester, I think, said as much in a, in a roundabout way. She said, we want to get the Fed funds rate up over 4%, called 4 to 4.5%, and then just let it sit there. And I think what she means by let it sit there is let's wait for the economy to catch up to it. Let's see how everything reacts to it. We we don't want to just keep going up to six or seven percent mm -hmm. in a nice 45 degree line. We need to we need to give time for the for the rate hikes from when we were down at one percent, one and a half percent to catch up. Right. To catch up with the economy. And I, I th so the Fed will stall. And by stall, we mean they will raise rates and then they'll say, OK, we're going to give this time now. The, 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 the part, I think, where the biggest debate is when will they pivot? What will it take to pivot? And by pivot, we mean to start reducing rates or at least start talking about a timeline for reducing rates. Mm -hmm. And then, Lance, the, the, there's a huge elephant in the room that no one is talking about, and that's QT. QT is now not starting today is now 95 billion a month. That's almost twice mm -hmm. as much as what they were doing in 2018. Now, QT also like uh, interest rates takes a while to have an effect. There's there's kind of a lag function on that. And that, that more affects the markets. That's liquidity. And what we should start seeing over time is that those that are most dependent on liquidity, so some of the very speculative hedge funds or private equity shops or some of the uh, some of the assets that rely on a lot of leverage will start feeling it first. So junk bonds may be a, an early place to see signs of stress. Mm -hmm. So so you got this lagged effect in the economy because of rates and you got a lagged effect in the markets because of QT. And I think that's a big deal. And it's just so few people are talking about QT and Today, we're going up to $95 billion a month. Right. That's a big number, Lance. Oh, it is. And, and the one thing that's important about this lag effect of interest rate hikes and QT really as well is that you don't know where the limit is. See, no, and you know, while Messer talks about you know, interest rates at 4%, we'll get to 4% and then we'll halt. The problem is, is we don't know where it is that something breaks the economy, right? So is it 2% Fed funds rate that cause a credit market crisis, right? Some, you know, freezes up something in the credit market. Well, so far, so good, right? So maybe 2% is not the number. But at 3%, something breaks the economy, 3.5%. The problem is, is for the Fed is they don't know where that number is as they're hiking rates. 
that something breaks economically and generally in the credit markets of some sort. And, and so while they may have this target of four or five or six percent on Fed funds rate, that sounds great in theory. But the problem is, is that they go to four percent. But the number that broke that wouldn't have broken the economy was three and a quarter. Right. And but by the time they realize the problem, it's too late. And this is why the risk of a policy mistake is so high because of that lag of a the lag effect on interest rate hikes and B, the function that they're using lagging data to measure the results of their actions. And so by the time but, you by the time you get to that junction point, it's too late to make a to make a timely decision. It, it, you either right. over tightened or you didn't. But Lance, there's another side to that, too. The rate, the right interest rate, maybe five or five and a half percent to really knock inflation back down to where they want it to be. Right. To get unemployment a little higher, it, it may not be four percent either. Right. So if, if the right rate is five percent, and you're right, it could be three percent, and they could have overshot it, but it could also be five percent, and they're undershooting it. Mm -hmm. And by undershooting it, they're basically going to let that price wage spiral gain a little momentum. So, so the Fed's in a really tricky position. They're driving with their rearview mirror, and they don't know whether they should have hit the brakes a mile ago or whether they need to keep driving a little longer than they thought. Right. No, and that's, and that's why you know, the risk of a policy mistake is, is really, I think, a lot higher right. than what markets give. The, you know, there's a lot. Look, there, there is, the markets give a tremendous amount of faith to a group of about 15 individuals that are kind of driving monetary policy. And, you know, it's kind of a scary thought. You know, we, we've got the entire, you know, financial stability of the economy resting in their hands, and they don't have any better data than anybody else. And we're just hoping they're interpreting it right in terms of how they're managing the economy. And, and unfortunately, you know, we keep giving them all the credit in the world, but, you know, the history of their actions Aren't, isn't great. They don't have a great track record of navigating the economy without causing, you know, big problems uh, for investors and for, uh, you know, for people. Right. And as as investors, here's what should kind of scare you about the situation. In the past, the risk was the Fed raised rates too much and they'd have to bring them down quicker. That was your risk. Now the risks are binary. Mm -hmm. It's that they didn't raise them enough or they raised them too much. And that's a whole different circumstance than any of us have really been in that kind of market. The only market we've been in for the last 30 years is that the Fed raised rate, may have raised rates too much, but the Fed could somewhat correct that pretty quickly by dropping rates, by doing QE, by doing all that kind of stuff. No one is used to the risk that the Fed didn't raise rates enough, that they stopped too soon. And the Fed's aware of it. Powell made that perfectly clear in his speech. But do they really have the gumption to, to, to cause harm to employees, to companies, to people, to politicians that are trying to run for re-election? <laughs> yeah, see, and I think, I think the big answer to that is, is I think they're okay with employment going up. You know, unemployment at 6 or 7%, they're probably okay with that. I don't think they're comfortable with a credit event, right? So right. if you start seeing financial instability of some sort, particularly and in, in, in the credit, I'm not talking about stock market prices. That'll be a that'll be a consequence of a credit event. Um, but if we start seeing credit spreads blow out, I think that financial that financial instability, which to your point earlier, we have so much debt in the economy. Right. Their biggest fear is a repeat of 2008, and I think if we start to see any cracks in that credit foundation, they're going to be in trouble really quick.
Agreed. And this is the incredible, difficult, incredibly difficult balancing act the Fed has to do right now. And it's it's they've never had to do this before yeah. to this degree. All right. Quick break. Uh, Winnie the Pooh, the slasher movie has now been released in theaters. So don't want to miss that. Winnie Pooh goes on the rampage. It's the new Freddy for, you know, Halloween is now Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> You know you're desperate for material when we get to Winnie the Pooh, the slasher film. Anyway, all right, got to wrap up the show for the day. We'll be back tomorrow, Financial Fitness Friday, with Danny Ratliff and Richard Rosso. Have a great day. Get by the website. Our latest daily commentary is out. Check out SimpleVisor.com, our completely digital research platform for do-it-yourself investors, SimpleVisor.com. Also, our latest newsletter, blog post, Michael's new blog post, out on the website now, RealInvestmentAdvice.com. Have a great day.